0: It's Wednesday, May 12th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack continues to affect the East Coast as some gas stations are running out of fuel and people are waiting in long lines to stock up. With this attack, ransomware has emerged as a large-scale threat, moving beyond schools and businesses to infrastructure like the Pipeline. The group DarkSide is said to be behind the attack, and resembles somewhat of a ransomware business. Robert McMillan, reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for how these types of cyber attacks are increasingly causing problems. Next, the FDA has approved the Pfizer-Beyond Tech vaccine for adolescents ages 12 to 15. They could be getting shots later this week, but as the pool of eligible recipients starts to skew younger, many parents are asking questions about vaccinating their kids. The dosage is the same as adults and was shown to be 100% effective against symptomatic COVID. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today, joins us for what we know. Finally, as the economy continues to rebound after pandemic closures, it is accelerating growth in small and mid-sized cities. And there are a few breakout cities that are at the forefront of the comeback. Greenville, South Carolina has a robust automotive industry. Provo, Utah has a growing tech industry with younger residents moving in and Des Moines, Iowa, is a place for finance jobs. Justin Baer, senior writer at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for the rising stars driving America's economic recovery. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: In cybersecurity, one is only as strong as one's weakest link, and therefore we are indeed focused on identifying those weak
0: links, working with those weak links, in the critical infrastructure enterprise. Joining us now is Bob McMillan, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Bob. Hey, Oscar. Ransomware attacks are in the news right now. We're all hearing about this attack on the Colonial Pipeline. This gas line represents about 45% of the Fuel that goes to the East Coast. So it's a pretty huge deal. And, you know, we're starting to see some gas stations run out, huge lines of people panic buying gasoline. The effects of this uh, are yet to be seen, really, as the colonial pipeline is shut down for now. But uh, really, what this hack shows is just how this ransomware threat now is kind of on the industrial scale. Before we'd see it at schools, you know, maybe some hospital chains, things like that. But increasingly, These gangs and these ransomware attackers are just getting emboldened and hitting bigger targets. So, Bob, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing with this Colonial Pipeline hack.
1: This is a business. I mean, this is like the company, sorry, the hacking group behind this operates very much like a kind of ugly software startup that's working outside of the regulatory framework. They, the product they make is something called ransomware as a service. And the services they offer are kind of um, unusual, but they're, they're very useful to, to criminals. So they offer um, media relations. They will facilitate phone calls between victims. They uh, make the software. And they actively recruit people that they call affiliates, who are essentially hackers who can break into companies and install their ransomware software on corporate networks. And uh, no one really knows what to do about it, quite honestly.
0: Tell me the numbers that we know about ransomware attacks in the country. And everybody always says the same thing. There's no database for how many ransomware attacks are happening in the country.
1: Yeah, that's right. And if you were hit with ransomware, your company's operations were affected, maybe your secret data was accessed, maybe it was taken from the company, maybe information about your customers was was obtained. There are a lot of people that don't wanna talk about that. They don't wanna publicly announce it. And sometimes you find out about these ransomware attacks like when there's no gas, but a lot of them just go under the radar. You know, It's a small company, it gets hit, it t- they pay the ransom, they're back up and running within a few days, they have a operational problem, but it's just not enough to make it into the press. So you're absolutely right, we really have no idea the full scope of the problem. And the actual cost of ransomware beyond, these are just the companies that paid. I mean, this doesn't include companies that didn't pay and had to restore everything from backup or rebuild systems. I mean, there are many companies that just incur great costs to kind of restore everything. And boy it's I, I would be really really be interested in hearing the uh, a, a a very accurate estimate of what what it's actually costing the country, but right. because of the nature of the crime, we're not going to get that
0: so what are we seeing in this colonial pipeline situation? Do we know what the ransom they're requesting is? what we've been hearing is that the ransomware attack didn't really hack into any critical infrastructure things with regards to the pipeline they just shut everything down so that it wouldn't spread or just out of caution but you know we're like you mentioned we're seeing the effects of it already with when it comes to the fuel and gas but what do we know about the actual terms of uh, of what's going on with the colonial pipeline
1: well we don't know i mean colonial is being tight-lipped about what the ransom demand was if they paid it what they're planning to do you know exactly how they're getting uh, back they've said that they they expect to have operational capability by the end of the week, but how that's being achieved is not clear right now. Uh, we know that this, this group, Dark Side, they hunt for the whales, right? They're not going after the uh, personal computer for 100 bucks. In documents where they've tried to recruit people to do the break in for them, they say, look, at if you can't command a half a million dollar or greater ransom, we don't even
2: want to deal with you as a partner.
0: Beyond that, they've extended to threaten to release documents and, and sensitive information that's happening with D.C. police, where another gang say, you know, they won't pay $4 million demand, so they're going to start leaking files on officers and things like that. So this uh, is not just about computer systems. It has, you know, a lot more to do with it. And I'm sure that we're going to be hearing more about this when the Biden administration talks about infrastructure projects and the need for more cybersecurity.
1: Yeah, I mean, like I said earlier, this is a problem that no one really knows how to deal with. I mean, in theory, if people stop feeding the beast, if they stop paying the ransoms, then the problem will go away. But when you have a, a, a choice between your business failing and you paying a couple million dollars to get, get back up and running, you're going to take that second choice.
0: Robert McMillan, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: My pleasure.
2: Over 2,200 children were part of the clinical trials for this approval, and it was shown that in those that received the vaccine, none of the children uh, were sick with the virus, and that the vaccine works just as well in children as adults.
0: Joining us now is Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Karen. Thanks for having me. Well, it looks like adolescents ages 12 to 15 are the next in line to be getting their vaccines. The FDA approved it. They're still... Another uh, thing that the CDC has to go through, but it seems that they will be the next ones to be available for the vaccine. This is specifically has to do with the Pfizer vaccine. And I know a lot of parents are going to have questions about vaccinating their kids to all this. So, Karen, let's run through some of these things. Is the dosage the same for adults and these adolescents?
3: Yes, it is. They found that kids respond well to this dose and didn't have such terrible side effects that they needed a, a lower side, a lower dose. So the doses are the same, which means that they can start giving them pretty much right away once the CDC signs off.
0: The side effects, everybody's always concerned about that, uh, right. you know, what's going to happen. How did the clinical trials show what happens with these adolescents?
3: So 12 to 15-year-olds respond pretty much the same as 16 to 25-year-olds. They get headaches, they get pain at the injection site, they get achy, tired, but they recover within a day or two.
0: Pretty much just like everybody else, which is good. How were the clinical trials, how was the studies done when it came to this age group? You know, what did we see? Because what what I was reading is that it was 100% effective against symptomatic disease, which is amazing.
3: So this study was smaller. The the um, adult study was thirty thousand people. This was twenty two hundred people. Kids half got the active vaccine, half got placebo. There were sixteen cases of COVID among those twenty two hundred. All sixteen of them had gotten the placebo. Nobody who got the vaccine actually got
0: sick. That's yeah. That's really good news. As I mentioned at the beginning, this has to do with the Pfizer vaccine specifically. What have we heard about uh, Moderna and Johnson and Johnson possibly? Being administered to younger age groups,
3: so studies are underway uh, for all the other vaccines in younger age groups. But they'll still be a little bit a little while. Pfizer started its study first, and because its vaccine is given three weeks apart as opposed to four with Moderna, it can study things a little bit faster than they can.
0: One of the questions that has been popping up when you know it comes to getting kids back to school and all that stuff, you know, is that uh, you know younger people, younger children, kids, all that the virus doesn't affect them the same way it does as adults. Largely, they're spared a lot of the most serious side effects. So the big question kind of begs, if they're not affected the same way, why should they be getting vaccinated?
3: So the risk-benefit ratio is is different. You know, if you're 85 years old and and have heart disease, you know, your risk of dying from COVID is very high, and you certainly want to be vaccinated. If you're a healthy 16-year-old, 15-year-old, it's a different calculus. And what they wanted to be sure of was that this vaccine was safe enough that it was still justifiable to give to a healthy 15-year-old. And so far, they've found that it is.
0: With uh, something like this, obviously, we've seen a lot of vaccine hesitancy. It seems like the big sell in getting your adolescent, this age group, 12 to 15, vaccinated is don't have to worry about going back to school. It can be done nice and safely now. With this authorization, it expands the pool of eligible recipients to about 87% of the U.S. population, mm-hmm. which is great. But adults have already been hesitant to get the vaccine themselves. What are they expecting when it comes to this age group?
3: I mean, certainly there's concern. Anytime you put something into a child, there's concern. I don't actually trust some of the polling data so far because it hasn't been available. So I think people have not kind of considered it as a, as a, as a real thing. So I, I think we'll see going forward now, now that it should be available as of, we hope, Thursday. And we'll see how parents react. It may be that they want to wait a little bit because they want to see how other kids do. But hopefully, by the time school starts, enough parents will feel comfortable. The teachers will feel comfortable going back into school buildings as well.
0: And what about the youngest age groups? Uh, people younger than 12 years old. I know there's uh, studies going on right now. Uh, when can we see data on that?
3: Exactly. And those those are lagging behind for a couple of reasons. One, because they were started later. They step down for children's vaccines. They start with adults and then older kids and then move down the age group. So they started those more recently. And also because those kids have smaller bodies, they may need a lower dose. And so it, it's a little trickier to figure out how much they should receive. So, you know, a six-month-old maybe that shouldn't get the same amount as an adult. So they're, they're testing all of that now, but it's We're expecting the 5- to 11-year-olds, which is the next group. We'll hear some data from Pfizer probably early September in that time frame. So not before the start of school, but maybe early in the school year.
0: Karen Weintraub, Mm -hmm. health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having
3: me.
2: about stuff that's really appealing to young professionals right you know and i mentioned outdoor activities because it really does draw a lot of young people um in and you know you can you can't imagine many places in the country that have more natural amenities than than being in the, <laughs> in the middle of the mountains.
0: joining us now is justin Baer, senior writer at the wall street journal thanks for joining us justin thanks for having me We're starting to open the country back up a lot faster now, and the pandemic has really accelerated growth in mid-sized cities. We'd seen for a long time uh, a lot of people leaving the big coastal cities, the big metropolises. Everybody went to remote working from home and everything, and you could basically live anywhere now and still kind of remain at your own company in a lot of situations. So what we're seeing right now is a few breakout cities that are really at the front of the economic recovery right now. We're looking at Greenville, South Carolina. We're looking at Des Moines, Iowa. We're looking at Provo, Utah. So, Justin, tell us a little bit about what makes these cities primed for this economic recovery.
2: Pretty much every region of the country, you had smaller, you know, mid-sized cities that were doing well and were, were certainly growing. A lot of the things that they all seem to have was, I guess, first off... Um, the more open space than um, is available in, in larger cities, so you know the, the prevalence of, of lots of outdoor activities. Those are you know very clearly, especially going heading at it last year, big draws for folks. Um, and kind of alongside that, uh, lower cost overall, particularly in the central urban cities, um, much more affordable to to live and work in those in those communities. That that was certainly a big deal couple other things you know a lot of the, the places certainly the ones we spotlighted had really good mix of industries that were poised to grow themselves so you know the first thing I think a lot of people think of with that is the technology space and certainly some of those cities especially in Utah had lots of that going on but there are other there are other industries that are usually do quite well when the economy overall is is gaining steam, and then we certainly found that the case in, in Greenville with their automotive industry. Uh, Des Moines was interesting because they have such a massive financial services sector, particularly in insurance, and that was also an area that not only was pretty resilient last year, but also is stands to grow pretty uh, significantly over the next few years.
0: You mentioned in your article that Greenville, South Carolina, was probably. One of the best cities kind of responding to the pandemic and opening back up. And you just mentioned the automotive industry there. They have about 120 automotive companies in that area right now. Michelin tires, BMW, just huge creators of jobs. And while a lot of these companies were a little slow when the pandemic uh, first started, they've started to really ramp back up.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the manufacturing sector as a whole, I I think probably got back online started to get production going relatively early on. You know, when we think about the some of the industries that were hit the hardest last year, think about travel and tourism, you know, certainly restaurants, um, all those in, in, in communities that were overly dependent on that. You know, the, the biggest case probably being Hawaii, right, where um, they were really struggling. And so manufacturing, while there was a period there where, yeah, they were, they were shut down um, and on demand for their products often was, you know, fell off pretty sharply. Um, they were able to kind of get up and moving, um, I think, a little bit faster. Um, and, and were able to do that, um, you know, even as other parts of the economy was still very much in lockdown.
0: You know, as you mentioned, these companies looking for a lot cheaper uh, places to operate in. A lot of people can work remotely. Uh, tell me about the tech sector there. Sure.
2: So that, that's been uh, growing for, for some time, and, and I think it's certainly gotten to a new level the last few years. And, um, you know, a part, a big part of it is you think about stuff that's really appealing to young professionals, right? You know, and I mentioned outdoor activities because it really does draw a lot of young people um, in. And, you know, you, can, you can't you can imagine many places in the country that have more natural amenities than, than being in the, in the middle of the mountains, as, as you find in, in Provo, and then really that whole part of, of Utah. So a couple things have been happening. One, um, they have a few very large universities nearby that every year pump out um, new graduates that major in various sort of STEM careers. And there's often a huge uh, pool of tech workers that are circulating the area. And then you do have you know, mission Silicon Valley, as uh, that part of the country has grown so expensive and more crowded, um, you have seen a lot of companies, particularly tech companies, looking for a, a second or, or, in some cases, third location.
0: The last question I have for all this, because it's great, these uh, cities are all doing good, And but what happens when too many people start going then?
2: That's an open question, right? And this, in, as a country... Um, you know, there are lots of uh, case studies of, of big cities that didn't handle that the right way, right? And so I, I think um, a lot of these communities have the benefit of, of seeing how that played out. Um, the city planners in those communities can, have seen some of the examples um, over the last century where um, they think they, they, they can learn from those. Um, but but I think some of that is is uh, unavoidable, right? I mean, you have... Um, you know, costs of living, which are were certainly a big draw for people in the first place, will undoubtedly go up, right? As as, as demands on things for housing and other other uh, uh, costs go up, um, and then of course you do have, you know, the, the experiences that you that you have as a resident, right? You can see uh, things get more crowded, um, more traffic, certainly more traffic. There's other examples, even of these that have really um, blown up in the last decade or so. Uh, how many uh, more complaints about, you know, the travel times and, and right. you know, congestion and um, all those things are, are, are going to be issues that they're going to have to confront um, some way or the other.
0: Justin Baer, senior writer at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Anytime. That's it for today. Join us on social media